All right, well, before we get started, children, pre-K through fourth grade, you guys can come down and see Miss Hope. She's going to take you guys over to where I think Rob says they will hear the gospel in their own language. They speak English, but it's just a little bit younger. Um, before we get started, let me pray real quick. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for gathering us all together, together here this morning. Lord, I pray that we would experience you through your scriptures today, Lord, that we would keep an ear open to your Holy Spirit, that you would come in this place and that you would bring us close. I pray, Lord, that they would, we would be with you today as we preach, and um, Lord, I pray that you would give me your words and not mine. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I am incredibly excited to be here, um, kicking off the new year. 2020 is finally over, thank God. Um, so, as I was praying about what I was going to be preaching to you guys this morning, the Lord laid on my heart uh, Ecclesiastes 1. Now, after reading through it, uh, Ecclesiastes 1 is not a book that I am super familiar with, to be honest with you, or at least it wasn't whenever I grew up in the church. Um, this was a book that my mentor in college and I actually studied together, and thinking about the lessons in Ecclesiastes, it's actually very fit and timely that we would be hearing it now after the cusp of 2020 into coming into 2021. Um, and so, before we get into Ecclesiastes, we have to know who wrote Ecclesiastes and what exactly the purpose in this book is. And so Ecclesiastes is written by David's son Solomon. Now Solomon was not a super special guy. Uh, he was not David's firstborn. He wasn't David's last. But he was the heir to the throne. Uh, and so after David passed away, Solomon took the throne and he was the third king over Israel. Now one night while Solomon was asleep, God came to Solomon in a dream. And he kind of gave him an offer of a lifetime, kind of the, an offer that whenever I was a kid and I heard this story, I was like, man, if only God could come to me in a dream and ask me, you know, I'll give you anything that you want. You just ask. I'll be like, I'll have everything. I was like thinking through the good questions, you know. But Solomon came, or God came to Solomon in a dream, um, and he offered him one thing. He said, anything that you ask, and I will give it to you. And so Solomon, in his humility, and also in what I would like to kind of think his oh my gosh, I'm king, what do I do, kind of mentality. In 1 Kings 3, we see how he responds. And so in 1 Kings 3, 9, Solomon says to God, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong for who is able to govern this great people of yours. And so Solomon doesn't ask for anything except that he would be able to govern God's people. He doesn't ask for something for himself, but he says, it will be difficult for me to govern, and so I ask that you help me govern these people so that they are cared well because they are yours. And God responds to him in 1 Kings 3, 11 through 14 with this. God said to him, this is verse 11, because you have asked this, and you have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word, and behold, I will give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before, and none like you shall arise after. So God grants him his wish, and in fact, gives him a promise saying, there is no one that has been wiser, and there is no one that will be wiser. And then he continues, kind of the icing on the cake. He says in verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all of your days. 
And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So on top of that, he says, you will actually be the richest and the most honor-filled king that is alive during your time. So there will be no king that is wealthier, no king that is more honorable than you. And he is going to be the wisest and most discerning king as well. And so Solomon, in his wisdom during his life, he sought to discover what was truly pleasurable in this life. He sought to discover what life was actually for, what is the meaning and the purpose of us being here. And in his pursuit of that, he explains in Ecclesiastes 2.9 how he pursued that and what he kind of discovered. And so if we look in Ecclesiastes 2.9, that's not where we're going to be preaching out of, but it's going to be um, kind of a window into it. He says, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, or all of my work. And this was my reward for all of my toil. And so Solomon said that whatever his eyes desired, he got. And whatever his heart wanted, he took it. And there was nothing that he withheld. So imagine, everything that you want, everything that you ever have desired, in the, like the small moments and in the big things, you have. And this is Solomon's life. Solomon was the richest person to ever live. He also had like a thousand wives. He had the most businesses in Israel. I don't, my grammar's awful today. He had the best businesses in Israel. He talks about how he had these vineyards that all thrived and he had cattle galore like across the hills. Solomon had everything that he could have ever wanted. And by writing Ecclesiastes, as an older man, he kind of gives us the lessons that he learned by having all of those things. See, Solomon sits in the shoes of a, a person that we will never be. We will never be, as much as we would like to pursue, the richest person or the person who has the most things. But from that perspective, Solomon gives us this book at Ecclesiastes at the end of his life, kind of like a, here you go, here's everything that I've learned, take it and apply it to your life now. And so as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to look at the lessons that Solomon wants to teach to Israel, but also the lessons that God wants to teach to his people and those who read it. And so Ecclesiastes 1 is where we're going to be looking at the whole chapter. It's great. Um, and so as is a custom at Northwest, we stand in honor of reading the word. So y'all stand with me as we read. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north and around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. The streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new, but it has been done already in the ages before us? There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, I, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven in this 
It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who are over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, and perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who is increased in knowledge increases sorrow. And so as we look, Solomon is a pretty happy dude, really. Y'all can be seated. Um, At the end of Solomon's life, after having everything in the world, you could see that Solomon's pretty peppy. He's very excited about having everything. Not really. I was expecting you guys to laugh at that. No, he's not very happy. Um, (laughs) He has noticed something about this, and he wants to teach it to us. And so the first lesson that Solomon wants to teach us, and this is the first point this morning, is that life is a vapor. Is that life is a vapor. Now you're probably wondering, Scott, I didn't see that word once. What are you talking about, vapor? We'll get to that. But first, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 1. Solomon writes, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And if your Bible is anything like mine, you'll notice that at the word preacher, there's a little one there, or maybe an A. If you look at your Bible, you follow that all the way down to the bottom. The Bible has in there other ways that this word can be interpreted or understood. We see down there at the bottom it says, preacher could be translated as conveyor or collector. It's the Hebrew word koheleth, which also can be translated to um, a collector of sentences, a public speaker, a speaker in an assembly, or a teacher. And so for those of you guys who don't know, I'm actually a high school teacher. This is what I spend my life doing when I'm not here on the weekends. I have a lesson or something that I want to give to my students, something that I want them to walk away with at the end of the day, a lesson that they don't have that they will have by the time they leave my classroom. This is exactly the same mindset that Solomon is having in writing this book. He has something that he wants to give to us, something that he wants us to attain and to walk away with by the time we leave here in the morning. He has something that he wants to teach us. And so today, we're going to be looking at what he wants to teach us, and then also, after we look at all of those things, we're going to look and see how, as 21 century Christians filled with the Holy Spirit, we can learn and apply those things to our life. That first lesson is that life is a vapor. Now we get to that word. If y'all look with me in verse 2, Solomon says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And whenever I hear that word vanity, I usually think of like meaningless. Uh, That's what Merriam-Webster says that this word means is meaning or vain or of no use, right? If we look at our Bibles, there's a little two by that word. And so the same deal, we run down to the bottom of the scripture and we see what this word is. It says it's the Hebrew term hebel translated vanity or vain, refers concretely to a mist, vapor, or mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive. And so Solomon here is not saying that everything is meaningless. In fact, he's saying that everything is a vapor or a breath. And so real quick, I want you guys to do this with me. On the count of three, I want everybody to just to take a breath. You ready? One, two, three. <sighs> See, this is what saying Solomon... This is what Solomon's saying life is. He's saying that a breath is not meaningless. In fact, I just took a breath, and so I was able to still stand up here and speak to you and, you know, be alive. So it's not meaningless. It has meaning in my life, but it's quick. 
And since I took that breath with you guys, I've taken about five more breaths since then. And those breaths don't remember the breath that came before it. And they definitely don't know about the breaths that have come after it. The breaths are quick and they're fast. And so Solomon is saying, everything in life is a breath of a breath. A vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is a breath. And this perspective is one that Christians need to take into 2021. That this life, yes, 2020 was felt long and it felt like eons, but it was just a breath of a breath. And you are still sitting here breathing, but your life is only going to amount to a breath. It's going to be quick. We move down on uh, verse 3 and we see him continue this thought. He says, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That word toil um, can also mean work. And so another way to ask this question is, what do you gain by all the work that you do? Like, yes, I teach and I get a paycheck and I'm able to pay off some bills, but what do you get by all the work that you do? You're able to buy some other things that won't really last as long as you. You, you maybe pay off a 30-year mortgage or you know, do whatever you do with your money. But really, what does your work amount to except for breath? Something that's gone quickly. Like, I hate to say it, but eventually time will erase you and me and everything that we care about. And this is what Solomon is showing us. It doesn't matter the possessions that you accumulate, the pleasures that you have on this world, they're all finite things that disappear. Like, how much time do we spend during quarantine watching movies and, and like watching Netflix, and yet those movies took like three hours or less, and then they're gone. The experience is over, and you move on to the next thing. This kind of cycle repeats all throughout life. Think of anything in your mind, and that cycle applies to it. Sports, your house, your families, everything is something that is here and then gone. We move down to verse 4, and I was kind of getting my head of, ahead of myself a little bit. And Solomon like, directly says it. He said, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In 120 years, I hate to be frank, but in 120 years, everybody in this room is going to be dead. The houses that we live in are probably going to be torn down or completely renovated and changed. The cars that you have right now are definitely not going to be driven. The sports that you play or the things that you care about are all going to be gone. This is what the teacher wants to show us. All of these things that we care about are going to be gone. Erased by time and by the generations coming after us. And then we look at verses 5 through 7, and Solomon doesn't just apply this to our lives as humans, but he also applies this kind of cycle and way of thinking to the rest of creation. He says, the sun rises and the sun goes down, and it hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, it goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full, and to the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You see, creation, creation is also a never-ending cycle of events. The earth circles around the sun over and over and over again, but for what purpose? The earth doesn't gain anything from that. It just keeps continuing. Like streams run into the ocean, yet the ocean will never be full. And then they go back and they just keep flowing. Their pursuit is vain. It goes quick. He had another example in there about the wind how it blows to the south and it blows to the north and around and around and around it blows. And if we look uh, in verse 14 of chapter one, 
Solomon says that he has seen everything that is done under the sun, everything that is done in creation, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. I know this is probably like a really cliche example to think about. I've heard this from the pulpit many times of like thinking about you chasing the wind. Like you can't catch it, you can only feel it. And running after the wind is like you see someone doing that running down 23rd Street trying to chase the wind. You're like, dude, you're wasting your time. Like you're never going to catch it. This is what Solomon is saying our pursuits are, is striving after a wind that will just keep blowing around. Life is a vapor. And it goes quickly. And the pursuits that we have are like striving after the wind. This bleeds into the next point, the next lesson that Solomon wants to teach us. The next point is that there is nothing in creation that will satisfy us. There is nothing in creation that will satisfy us. We look at verse 8 through 11. And it says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. And there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. There is nothing in creation that will satisfy us. I think back to my childhood, and my parents are divorced, and I saw my dad every other weekend. Um, and my dad had an Xbox at his house. And so I don't know if this relates to some of you guys in this room, but the, for those of y'all that play video games, y'all kind of know what I'm talking about. Me and my brother would go to my dad's house, and we'd play video games all day long with my stepbrother. And every once in a while, we'd come back to my dad's house, and my stepbrother would come up to me and he'd be like, Scott and Michael, we need to start over. And me and my brother would look at him like, what are you talking about? We've spent hours, days playing on this game, building whatever we're doing. And he's like, no, no, no. We need to start over so that we can do it better. So then eventually, since he was older than us, we kind of just like, okay, sure. And then we started over and kept playing the game with him. And I didn't think about it then, but as I'm older, I now realize that this type of like starting over so that I could do something better applies to different areas of my life. And then the more that I think about it, I realize the reason I started over wasn't so that I could do it better, but it was because I was afraid of finishing. I was afraid of finishing and completing the game because I knew that once I finished and completed it, it would not satisfy me. I would have to find a new game or I'd have to find something else. The younger people in this room who watch YouTube know that this is something that happens all the time. You start watching YouTube for an informational video about how to bake a cake or something. And then you find yourself nine hours later down the road watching someone do a backflip on a road bike. You're like, it's a completely different video and you have no idea how you got here. But the reason you keep watching and the reason you can't stop is because you are afraid of stopping because you know it won't satisfy. You know that spending those nine hours or so on YouTube is a waste of your time and that you have not satisfied yourself any more than whenever you started. This applies for those older people in the room as well. We go to our job or we go to a book or anything that you find pleasure in, it'd be sports, fantasy football, whatever. We know that at the end of those things, we are not more satisfied in ourselves than we were when we started. Nothing in this world will satisfy us. And this is what the preacher wants to teach us. This, not me, but Solomon. <laughs> Had to set that out there. Um, but So I spent my life squeezing pleasure out of everything that I could. And it was a vain pursuit. 
And so the question I want to ask you guys is, what have you spent your life squeezing pleasure out of? Like, think about it. There's probably a long list of things. If I go into my head and I think about a list, there's like a list of like 50 items that I've tried to get anything that I could out of it. But what have you spent your life squeezing pleasure out of? And has that satisfied? We look in verse 9 and 10 and he says, what has been is always, I'm sorry, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing which is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. See, whenever I read that verse, my mind instantly goes to iPhones. iPhones were new when they came out. Nothing was like an iPhone whenever those things came out. Solomon's wrong. But then the more I think about it, that's not exactly what he's saying. Um, The best way to illustrate this is I had a professor in college, a philosophy professor, come into the class, and he sat down, and he looked at us, and he goes, try to think of a new color. Think of a new color. And then as we, like, thought about a new color or tried to come up with one, he started explaining the benefits of thinking of a new color. He said, if you figured out how to create this color in the physical, you'd be the only person that knew how to create this color. Celebrities, governments, big, big people with lots of money, big corporations would want to pay you billions of dollars to put this new color on their logo, on their flag, or on their dress. You would be so rich. So let's think of a new color. And as class went on, he realized really quickly that the only colors that you can think of are just mixes of oranges and blues and greens. And then you're just like, no, that's just another brown. And you're just trying to think of all of these different colors, but really you can't think of one. The reason why is humans can only create collaborations of things that already exist. The iPhone wasn't new. It was just another form of communication. Communication was created by God. And that's something that's already been done. Entertainment's not anything new. It's just the showing of pleasure, enjoying something, and that was created by God. And so everything that you can think of, that you can create, that you can innovate, is actually just something else collaborated or changed a little bit based on what God had created. There is nothing new under the sun. Isn't that crazy? Wow. Like, God is so good, and we are so not smart. Like, we can only just create things that God did. And that's it. Like that one speaks to God's glory, but also speaks against our hubris and our pride. Like the only things you come up with are stuff that people have already thought of. Then we continue on to verse 11, which is probably one of the most sobering verses in this passage. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after you will not be remembered at all. Like, think about history, the things that we learn in history. Like, the more humanity excels and the more things that we learn, the less we actually study about the things in the past. Trust me, I've thought about this verse quite a bit, and I was like, I know who Emotep is. I know who, you know, these the emperors, Caesar. I know Julius Caesar. Like, he's still remembered, and... He lived thousands of years ago. Solomon is saying that the more people advance, the less people are going to remember. Like back in the day, I don't know when, but they would study these empires and they would have more time to study it because there was less stuff. But now whenever you go through your history classes in schools, they're like, 
pyramids, Caesar, World War II. And you're like, you skip over millions and billions of people that no one knows that they lived and they had aspirations in life. They had things that they cared about. They had things that they didn't want to lose. They had things that they wanted. Nobody remembers them. Like, to be honest, I don't even remember my great-great-grandparents' name. And that was almost 100 years ago. In 120 years from now, everybody in this room will be dead. Nobody will be remembered. The places that you walked and the places that you lived will be completely different. And there is nothing you can do about it. Everybody will be forgotten. And this is the cycle that Solomon's trying to get us to see. A generation will go. The generation will come. The earth will remain forever. There is no remembrance of former things. And there is no remembrance of anything later except those who come after. The only people that remember the things that will come later are the people that lived during that time, and they too will be forgotten. And so in light of this, there's only one question that Solomon wants us to ask. What does this mean for your life? And what does this mean for me? If my life is just a vapor, it's a mist, it's a breath, (sighs) gone, and I won't be remembered, there's nothing that I can do that's different from the people before me, what do I do? What is, the, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here breathing? And in light of all of this, how can you make your life count? All you're doing is impacting other breaths. And that's it. Like the, the people that you impact are also breaths that are going to go away as well. So how do you make your life count? Well, Solomon says this at the end of the book in Ecclesiastes 12. He says, the end of the matter, all that has been heard, so everything that I've taught you, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So he says, at the end of everything, after everything that you learned, your life is essentially meaningless. It's a vapor, it's a breath, and nothing you do will really make any impact. Here's the one thing that you do. Fear God, keep his commandments. Now, I'm not going to get into the discussion about fear, but whenever we look at that word fear, he genuinely is talking about fear and reverence, yes, but also like every single time someone comes, comes into the throne room of God, you have to ask yourself a question, why do they shake and fall down to the ground? It's because God is fearful. He's mighty, he's majestic, he's holy and he's powerful. Fear God. Those things that you fear, you will follow keep his commandments. And truly, I ask myself a question, like, why does that matter? I'm only going to be keeping the commandments around people who are also vapors. But in reality, in in the created things, there's nothing that will last that is created, at least here on earth. But what will last are the eternal things. And at the end of your life, or in the end of my life, We both will stand before the creator of the universe, the infinite and holy God, and we will have to give an account for the life that we lived, an account for the things that we have done. And as we give that account of the things that we've done, and as God assesses every second of our life, what will he be assessing? What will he be looking at? A life spent on 
trying to get your friends to trade players with you for fantasy football, a life spent on watching Netflix for days on end, spending hours and hours and hours doing things that are useless, a life spent reading books that don't matter. What did you do? Did you do anything to impact eternity? I think a good example of this, and I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I heard um, another preacher say this to me, gave this example. He said, whenever you get into heaven, assuming that you are surrendered to the Lord, you will meet your family, you'll be able to see God, but you're there for an eternity, so who are the people that you're going to want to see? And he said, for me personally, and I would agree with this as well, I'd want to talk to like Moses and Ezekiel and Elijah and Elisha and be like, what was it like to see the gods part the seas? Like, what was it like to see God in a vision bring together an entire valley of dry bones for the worship of his name? Like, what was it like to see God do all of these things? And in reality, what we don't realize is that Moses and Ezekiel and Elijah, they're going to be sprinting towards us and being like, what was it like? You're going to be like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? They're like, what was it like to have the spirit of my God living inside of you? See, then you realize that you have something that they don't. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says that they are waiting for us because God has prepared something better for us, that only with us they will receive what was promised, and that is communion with God. See, as those who are in this room that are Christians, they have something that nobody in existence had, and that is a one-way conversation, spirit-living-inside-of-you relationship with the creator of the universe, and what are we doing with it? In 2020, I squandered it. I spent a lot of time watching Tiger King and sitting on my couch and sleeping and applying for jobs and a bunch of things like that. Yes, a bunch of amazing things happened in 2020. I'm not going to deny that. And for you guys that know me, a lot of amazing things happened in 2020. I got married. But there were some things that most of the time I spent squandering it. Anyway. I want to take a pause real quick and share with you um, the only thing that matters. You see, this striving after the wind, this seeking after things that are created are actually explained in Romans 1 as worshiping creation. Giving your affections, your time, your adoration, your love to things that are in this world. That is you worshiping the things that are created. And Paul in Romans says that you are exchanging the truth about God for a lie. And you're worshiping serving created things rather than the creator. Well, when you do that, that's like your mom making you a delicious meal. And then you being like, mmm, this meal is so good. I love you meal for being delicious. And your mom will be like, dude, what are you, what are you talking to the meal for? I created that. And that's offensive. When you commit that offense, that is an offense against an infinite and holy God and deserving of an infinite and holy punishment. And in hell, after you die, he will pour out his wrath upon you. And he knows that no, no one in this room has not done that. And no one in this room can stop doing that. We all accumulate wrath for ourselves every day. But because he's loving and he doesn't want to destroy us, he manifested himself on this earth as Jesus Christ, gave only worship and adoration to himself, the only one worthy of that, died on a cross unjustly, suffered the death and the wrath that you deserve, resurrected from the grave to give you an opportunity to be covered by his blood and have communion with God. That's amazing. 
You see, he doesn't just save us from wrath, but he gives us a relationship with him. Our sin separates us from him. We won't understand anything that God does until we surrender to him. His blood will cover us. He will sanctify us so that we can be with him. And then we will know him. And if that doesn't just bring you to worship, there's nothing that will. (laughs) Because that is the most amazing thing in existence, guys. That is the one thing to live for, is to see people surrendering their life to him. To see worship accumulated on this earth. To know that someone's eternity has changed from wrath to worship. And that's what we're saved unto. Um, There was a conference last week called Cross Conference, and this is all they talked about. It was John Piper and David Platt and a lot of other guys talking about the need to share the gospel and talking about the need for people to know and for us to not live our life for vain things, but to live our life for eternal things. When John Piper asked that question, like, what are we saved for? Why does God's spirit dwell inside of us? And he said, we are delivered from evil for the hallowing of God's name, for the worship and revering and the cherishing of God's name. David knew this, and he didn't even have the Holy Spirit inside of him. In Psalm 63, he said, because of your steadfast love, I'm sorry, because your steadfast love is better than life, because your love is better than life, I will lift my lips and praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. Out of response to God's love, he says, I will praise you and I will worship you. And if there is nothing that is eternal in this world except for fearing God and obeying his commandments, he does have a command for us in Matthew 28. This is a command that Rob talks about all the time. In fact, every single conversation I have with him, he spins it back to Matthew 28. He says, this is the great commission. This is the gospel, Scott. And he talks about it every time. Where Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What God's commanded us to do is to cultivate worship in every nation, among every people, among every heart. And that's the third point. If nothing in this life is worth doing really, the only thing that we live for is we live for the worship of God. That's it. We live for the worship of God in our lives and we live for the worship of God in every other life. And so, this is why all things were created, honestly. Like, I mean, we can really think about that and we know that, but scripture speaks to that. In Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and all things were created for him for him, for his worship, to be with him, for him to commune with and encounter. All things were created for him. There's one ultimate purpose for man in all of eternity, and that's the worshiping of God's name. You have the end of time in Revelation 15, the very end of everything ever. It's like the the pinnacle of what we live for, the day that Paul talks about, Revelation 15 talks about it. In Revelation 15, uh, John, who is seeing this vision, this revelation from God, writes this. He says, 
At the end of all things, someone asks, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, and the nations come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. You alone are holy, and all of the nations worship you because you have been revealed. And then he sees this. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, every nation, every tongue, every language will sit there and worship. Salvation belongs to God, and it is joyful just to declare it. In heaven, there is only the hallowing of God's name, and there is no higher aim. But this is where my heart breaks. It's not for the vapor or the mist or anything like that. Um, Eliezer, would you mind pulling up the picture of the 1040 window? There's a window from longitude 10 and longitude 40. You have the most western countries of North Africa, all the way over China, Japan, there it is, Philippines, Thailand. The Middle East is included, India. In the 1040 window, 5.16 approximately billion people live here. That's a little bit over two-thirds of the world's population. There's almost 8 billion people that are alive today. So about two-thirds of the people live here. Does anybody want to guess how many people in this 1040 window are Christians? How many people are going to heaven and how many people know of God's great name? 500,000. Now, that's a big number, yes, but it's definitely not as big as 5 billion because 500,000 is 0.01%, I'm pretty sure, of 5 billion, something like that. I should have double-checked. But... (laughs) You live and you learn. Look to the person on your left and look to the person on your right. Some of y'all didn't do it. That person that you looked at has a life and they have a family. They have things that they care about. They have things that they do. That other person is the same. They have things that they think about all the time, things that they dream about. There's five billion people that all have those same aspirations, children, old people, with experiences and with their own lives that they live. The saddest part is that most of them, in fact, there's a number for it, three billion of them have never met a Christian and have never heard the gospel. And the Bible says that the law of God is written on every man's heart so that they are to be held accountable. It's Romans 1. Which means that three billion people on this planet are going to hell and they don't even know it. They are worshiping creation and they don't know. And they're going to be going to hell for eternity and they don't know. Paul in Romans says this about the people who don't know. He says that he is under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. So if you don't know the purpose of the book of Romans, he's writing to the church in Rome whom he's never met, and he asks them pretty much for funding or help to get to Spain where the gospel has not been preached. And he explains to them that he is under obligation. Another way to say that word is he is indebted to those people. 
up until this last week or so, I have not considered myself to be in debt to the people who don't know. This is what we are. Our eternities are changed, and what are we going to spend our life doing? Because I've spent my life so far selfishly doing the things that I want in this country where there are churches every block. Yet there is not one church in like eight of those countries. <laughs> are we, do we live indebted to the people who don't know? And are you eager to share with those people who don't know? Am I eager? Am, I have to ask myself this question now that I'm up here because I'm accountable to the things that I say. Am I willing to spend my breath on this earth bringing the gospel to those who don't have it? I extend that same question to you. I know a lot of you guys in here are probably thinking like, well, I've already rooted myself here in America or I'm about to retire or you have your own things that I know already you're thinking through. And I want to say that like, if we really think about it, if we really think about it, we can spend a retirement over there. You can quit your job. I'm not encouraging you to, I'm just saying that's a possibility. There's ways that you can cut ties with the things that are holding you down. And so I encourage you, as Paul does in Ephesians, to think about, to actively pursue, and to discern what is pleasing for the Lord. What's pleasing to him. I think that's Ephesians 5. What does God want with your life or the rest of it? Does he want you to spend it overseas? Have you asked him that question? Does he want you to spend it uprooting your family and going? This is the last thing and I'll, I'll finish. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a uh, martyr who lived during the time of World War II. He's a German Christian and he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids them come and die. He's kind of um, not like, he's kind of plagiarizing what Jesus said in Matthew 16 when he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever is trying to preserve what they have here on this earth will lose it. Whoever's trying to hold on to the pleasures or the security or the comforts that they hold here in this country will lose it. But whoever loses his life, comforts, the securities, those things that you hold on, for my sake, will find it. They'll find life. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is why Paul says we're under obligation is because what will you give in return for God saving your soul? You're not just indebted to those people who don't know, but surrendering your life to God is a literal surrendering of your life. You're giving your life to Jesus. Jesus holds it and he is in charge. He is the Lord over your life. And that's why it's incredibly important for you to ask yourself, like, what is God asking me to do? Will this be pleasing to him? Because uh, whether you want to believe it or not, he's already asked us to go in Matthew 28 to the nations that don't know. 
that word nation is translated in the Bible to ethnos, which is a people group that have the same common language or the same culture. And there's 9,000 of those in the 1040 window, different languages and cultures that don't understand one another. And so we're not just talking about nations like Iran or Saudi Arabia. We're talking about people groups that exist that don't know the gospel. And he's told us to go and make disciples in every nation. If, and if so, if there, if there are nations that exist, you can definitely make the argument, as one of my friends said this week, that you need to go. So there's a joyful cost in laying down your life for God. Joyful because you are going to heaven and you're also getting to share this with other people. But it's a cost because it costs you your life and the things that in this world you will care about. His glory, my death. And all Christians must walk in this call. That is why um, in 2021, Northwest is not completely shifting their focus on missions, but is kind of directing attention to the 1040 window for the trips that we are going to take. In this next year, Lord willing, we're going to be taking trips over into those countries to help out the very few brothers and sisters that exist there, share the gospel and change eternities. And so there will be probably some announcements about those trips and their groups are going to be small for security purposes. You can't really take 40 Americans into another country and not get noticed, so the groups will be small. <laughs> but if the Lord is leading you to go on those trips or if the Lord is asking you to go forever, there's like, I don't know, eight or so missionaries that have been overseas in the 1040 window that already attend this church and there's a lot of people that have a lot of resources that can help you out with that. And so don't be afraid to reach out. But that's what we're shifting our missions to. And so I'm leaving you with 1 John 2, 15 through 17. After all of this, life is a vapor. Nothing in this world will ever satisfy us. We live for the worship of God. The apostle John says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of this flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for moving here. Thank you for um, allowing your spirit to speak through me and to speak to the people that sit here and to speak to me as well. God, I ask that we would be a people who radically and passionately pursue you, who discern what your desires are for our lives and without second guessing it, give our lives to you. I pray, Lord, that in the coming days, in the coming weeks, that you would send hundreds of people out into Oklahoma City to share the gospel and to share this news with the people that don't know. I pray that waiters and cashiers would be converted this week. I pray that worship will be cultivated and that we would love you and we would love to be with you. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through my brothers and sisters that sit here. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.